0: There's this sense in my heart deeply that the message today is a word spoken in due season. It is the right word at the right time to the right people. It's a right now word for us. And so for the last several days, I felt the Lord leading me to walk us as a congregation through verse by verse, expositionally through the 149th Psalm. So we're going to have a Bible study this morning. And the application of this passage This psalm has some deep relevance to where we are on our journey as a church, but I'm certain it speaks to where some of us are as individuals today. There are 150 psalms in what we call the Book of Psalms. Psalm is another word for song. So what they are is actually a collection of 150 songs. The last five of those psalms, Psalm 146 to 150, In the Hebrew tongue, they all begin and end with the same word. It is hallelujah, which literally translates praise the Lord. So depending on what English translation you're reading from, it may, those last five may begin with hallelujah and end with hallelujah, or they may begin with praise the Lord, or they may end with praise the Lord, but they all begin and end with the same word because they are Psalms of victorious praise, and they differ in a great degree from all the other Psalms. Because almost in every other psalm that you read, you're going to find disappointments and discouragements because those psalms are very honest and transparent about the evil of life and the injustices of life and the personal failures of life to the point when you read all those other psalms, you see... Due to evil, injustice, and personal failure, the psalmist struggling to understand those things. And yet by the end of those psalms, you always see him turn his heart back to say, God, I'm going to praise you even when I don't understand. There's this resolution to say, I don't get it, but you're still great and I'm going to bless you. You don't find any of that in the last five psalms. They are an emphatic closure to the book of praise because these last five contain no disappointments. They're the bookend of this book and they declare to us that the book end of our lives should be this core of deep trust and praise. They're songs that celebrate victory. And sometimes the victory these songs are celebrating are victories that have not yet even fully materialized. It is praise that is offered in advance. Praise for a victory while the battle is still raging. Praise that is certain God will be faithful to his word. Praise that is anchored deeply in trust And surrender, a praise that is founded more on the sovereignty of God than it is on our current circumstances. These final five Psalms are like songs that we read in the last book of the Bible, the songs of the book of Revelation, which point to this inevitable once and for all victory that the Lord has prepared for His people. Because at the end of the day, at the end of time as we know it, when all is said and done and this life, is in our rear view, absolutely nothing will be left except our praise and our gratitude. So as we walk into this 149th Psalm, my prayer today for me, for us as a congregation, is that God would grow us and mature us to the place we can be like these people, where we can learn to start offering praise to God before the victory ever starts materializing because we have such trust in His character and such trust in Him is our defender. And so with that in mind today, I titled the message Celebrating Victory Before It Comes, Offering God our expectant praise. You might say, but pastor, isn't it a little presumptuous to start praising for a victory that hasn't even happened yet? And the answer could be yes and no, because there's a fine line between presumption and faith. And here's how you know the difference. Presumption is belief in your ability to determine an outcome. Faith is trust in his. It's the difference between trusting in yourself and trusting in him. If you're trusting in yourself or in human strength and you start celebrating that victory before it happens, you're being presumptuous. It happens in sports a lot of times where you got the guy running on a long run down the football field and he starts high stepping about the 10-yard line and somebody comes up from behind him and tackles him or knocks the ball out of his hand and he does it. he celebrates a touchdown before he crosses the goal line and doesn't make it that's presumptuous. It happened Friday night to basketball great Steph Curry The Golden State Warriors were playing the Minnesota Timberwolves, and Steph Curry and the Warriors felt like the game was being robbed from them by the refs, so they were having to beat the Timberwolves and the refs, and with a few seconds left in the game, he makes an impossible shot out of the corner, goes ahead, and they're so frustrated, and everybody just assumes the game is over, that that won the game. Curry arrogantly and presumptuously puts his finger in the refs' face, as is to say, we didn't just beat them, we just beat you. The problem was there was still time on the clock. The refs called a foul. The Timberwolves shot free throws. They end up winning the game. Obviously, Golden State's furious, but they were presumptuous. You don't celebrate a victory until all the time is off the clock. However, if you find yourself in a battle where the odds are stacked against you and the point of humanly overcoming it is impossible, and in that moment, instead of giving it up, You turn completely over to God. You have such a complete trust in Him in that moment that you're willing to start praising Him for a victory while the battle is still raging. That's not presumption. That is faith. Presumption is belief in your ability to determine an outcome. Faith is trust in His. As you read through some of the language of Psalm 149, especially as we get to the end of it, verse 6 through 9, the wording is really aggressive. It's uncomfortable to the modern reader. It's actually very militant. But you have to understand the psalm was written by and for a people whose nation had been at war and under siege for generations. They've been attacked, raped, enslaved, and brutalized by invading armies for generations. And they are often the smaller Outgunned and outmanned nation. That's why Jeremiah the prophet calls them a brand that has been plucked from a fire. They are the underdog, the overlooked, the disenfranchised. They're like the ember or the log from the fire that was set aside from the fire and left to burn out. They are a brand plucked from the fire. And yet, somehow, supernaturally, in the face of all these odds and all these attacks, they have stood the test of time. Supernaturally, they're still standing. The psalmist is saying to them, but the battle is not over. So turn your heart toward God's ability. Trust Him to deliver. Start celebrating the victory before the victory has ever come. And what I say he's calling them to do, he's challenging them to faith-cast. their faith-casting instead of forthca- forecasting. You see, forecasting looks into the future with your natural eyes and sees all the very real but negative probabilities. Faith-casting is when you look with your spiritual eyes and you begin to see supernatural possibilities. It's a lot like the uh, prophet Elisha and his servant when... He went out, and they were surrounded, and the army of Aram was ready to attack the prophet because he had been giving inside secrets to the king of Israel, and they wanted to get rid of this inside ear the king had to God. So let's take out the prophet. So they've encamped around the prophet. He out. servant he sends the servant out to look, and the servant counts all the soldiers, and he said, sir, we're out manned. And Elisha said, Lord, will you open his eyes so that he can see they that be with us are more than they that be with them. So the uh, the servant goes back out, and he starts seeing angels everywhere. The first time he goes out, he forecasts. He sees very real negative probabilities. But when God opened his eyes, he started seeing with eyes of faith. And in the supernatural, he saw very real supernatural possibilities. And let me tell you, if God is on your side, they that be with you are always more than they that be with them. Let's look at this together. Psalm 149.1. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praises in the assembly of the faithful. Focus in on that new song. This first verse, we see the praise of an expectant people. This new song gives us this sense that God is about to do something among them that is going to give them something completely new and different for which to praise. They have this sense that God is at work. And there's a new song welling up inside their soul. There's an expectancy on the inside of them. And every one of us have felt what they felt at Psalm 149 at some point in our life. A sense that a new day was dawning, that we were on the verge of a breakthrough. Maybe it was a family situation or a health crisis that was very real to us. But there was this expectancy that God was going to change the situation. That there was something in the air that God was at work. It was just around the corner. Or maybe you've been in a season of deep grief and darkness. You couldn't see the light of dawn. But you start sensing the light at the end of the tunnel. You start maybe seeing some light shining through the dark night of your soul. And there's an expectancy that you're about to turn the corner. It's the same feeling that a small dying community gets as it struggles to survive, and then there's an announcement that a major corporation is coming to town to open up a factory, and the the idea of new jobs and new opportunities breathe a sense of expectation and life into that community. It's a new song. Or maybe you've seen it in a downtown urban area that's been crime-ridden for a long time and, and neglected, but there's demolition going on because urban transformation is happening. New business is moving in. It's urban renewal. Transformation is in the air. Something new is coming. There's a new song. It's also the feeling that you get when you're a part of a church it looks back over its last 98 years of history, and at some very specific moments of that 98 years, there are times when it would have made more sense to shut the doors than it would have to keep them open when there were only six people left and eight people left, and the denomination said, let's shut the door and sell the property. And some determined people said, no, we're not going to do that. There were moments in that 98 years that say to us today, we shouldn't be here right now. And then you look at the credible favor of God in recent history, the impacts that have been made, the transformed lives, and yet while we sit here living in that moment, we have this sense... That we're standing at a place that we have not yet even scratched the surface of. That we are just now getting started. That truly the eye has not yet even seen and the ear has not yet even heard what God has prepared for his people. That we are literally on the precipice of something. That God is up to something. And he is trying to put a new song of expectation in our hearts for what is just around the corner. And yet all around us. People's lives are under siege. Maybe your own life is under siege. The church is under siege. But we come to the place when we read this song that we commit to sing a new song of expectant praise based on the promise of what's coming when we can't even see it yet. So let me challenge you to have the faith to sing your new song. Read a little further, verse 2. O Israel... Rejoice in your maker, O people of Jerusalem, exult in your king. Praise his name with dancing, accompanied by tambourine tambourine and harp. In verse 2, you see the praise of an exuberant people. These are people that have been under siege for generations. And the psalmist is telling them of a day when that warfare is going to end once and for all. And if you were them and you really believed in that promise, the belief in that promise would demand more than half-hearted praise. It would demand an exuberant praise. And you read about tambourines and harps dancing. These are not funeral instruments. Nobody in the 149th Psalm is preparing to surrender to their enemy and nobody is giving up at the base of the mountain that they stare at. These are instruments of celebration. Pay attention to the words that are used in these two verses. Rejoice, exalt, praise. This isn't some half-hearted offering to God. These people are choosing joy while they are still at war. And it is a kind of joy that may be odd to the modern reader who doesn't understand war the way they do. This is a joy that is expressed as they look to a day when the battle is over, their enemy is crushed. It's a joy of triumph that comes after a military conquest. And yet they are choosing to offer joy and praise for a victory that isn't even yet fully complete. And then in verse 2 you read, exalt your king. Now make it known. He's making clear. So make sure you understand this. When he says, exalt your king, he is saying to them, there may look to be another king in charge, but you need to know who the real king is, and you need to understand who is really in charge, because the king that I'm reminding you to look to is in charge of whoever looks like they're in charge. There is a sovereign that is working behind the scene who is in control of whoever looks like they're in control, and his presence is with us. He is here. He is putting a new song of expectation in our hearts, it is imminent, it is just around the corner, so sing your new song. Now when I interact with people who don't have praise in their heart, they're not a worshiping people, they don't understand the joy of worship, I'm really concerned about people who have a praiseless heart. But I'm even more concerned about people who are willing to offer God a heartless praise. When you go through the motions of religious, ri- religious ritual, maybe just because it's learned behavior, but you're going through the motion without the feeling and engagement of your heart, it's just duty, creed, obligation, that kind of religion is death. And when you're going through the religious motions of offering God a heartless praise and you're not moved by the majesty of your king and you don't have the ability to sense when he is at work among his people, that is a very dangerous place to be. The Bible calls that place the position of hard-heartedness. And it has been the condition of religious people since the beginning of time. Dr. Henry John Henry Jowett was... The pastor at Westminster Chapel in London. He lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he made a statement that addresses the issue when our worship gets to that place. It's amazing that this statement was made over a hundred years ago, but this is what he said We leave our places of worship, and no deep and inexpressible wonder sits upon our faces. We can sing these lilting melodies. And when we get out into the streets, our faces are one with the faces of those who've left the theaters and the music halls. There's nothing about us to suggest that we've been looking at anything stupendous and overwhelming. Far back in my boyhood, I remember an old saint telling me that after some services, he liked to make his way home alone by quiet bypaths, so that the hush of the Almighty might remain on his awed soul. That is the element we are losing. If our praise is heartless and our joy is manufactured it is only because we have lost faith in God's word and we have lost our trust in the promise of what he said. We have lost the ability to be excited about what God is up to before we can ever see what God is up to. We have lost the ability to praise God based on his promise before we ever see the promise materialize. We must become a people who learn to sing a new song while she still in the middle of battle, a people with expectant and exuberant praise. Look at verse 4. For the Lord delights in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. In the fourth verse, we see the praise of a humble people. And let me say this to you. Success is a greater danger to you and to God's people than failure. Because if you fail, it often strips you and makes you vulnerable and forces you on your face in complete and total dependence on God and God can raise you up. But when you start having some measure of success, human nature is to start taking credit for the very thing that God has made possible, and when that happens, arrogance and pride rises in your soul, and it's the beginning of the end. It is a great danger to your life, and it's a great danger to churches in our position. When we've seen God do so much for us, and we look back over our history, and we wind up becoming proud, when our memories become bigger than our dreams, and we stop living out the dream of touching the nations for his glory, we start reveling in the success of this moment and we start thinking we got here because we worked hard enough or we were smart enough or we were good enough. When all of that happens in your life or that happens in a church, we are getting to what I call the Uzziah place. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, let me introduce you to him because God introduced me to Uzziah when I was a 26-year-old senior pastor. Now when I was 26-year-old, I wasn't senior anything, but that was the position I held and I had been given places of position that were far beyond my experience and we started seeing some successes and I think the Lord introduced me to Uzziah in a very profound way so that I would guard my heart and I've been praying ever since that day, keep me from the Uzziah place. Uzziah became a king at the age of 16. He reigned at the same time Zechariah was a prophet. He co-reigned for a while with his father. His entire reign over Judah was for 52 years. Early in his reign, he was a righteous king. He led one of the greatest spiritual awakenings in Israel's history. He was incredibly gifted. He was a renaissance man before the renaissance. He was an amazing strategist. He invented military devices. He rebuilt cities. But he was seated in a place of power and prestige for so long that he started feeling like all of those ideas and all of that ingenuity and all the things that were happening to Israel were happening because of him and his giftedness. So he started taking credit for the successes to the degree that he broke one of the laws of God. There were defined laws in the Old Testament of who could be a king And who could be a priest? You had to be a descendant of the tribe of Levi in order to be a priest. Uzziah wasn't. But one day he woke up and said, you know what? God has been so good to this nation because of me as a king. What would he do if I was also a priest? So he oversteps the line, calls himself the son of David, walks into the temple, takes up a scepter rod, and begins to function as a priest. 80 priests confront Uzziah because they know God is going to judge him for his arrogance. They try to stop him. He breaks out in a fit of rage. As an act of judgment, his forehead is stricken with leprosy and then begins to consume his body. He runs out of the temple and is cut off from the people of God. The weight of that story rested heavily on me as a 26-year-old pastor, and I've never forgotten it, and I have prayed ever since that moment up until this one, God, protect my heart before I ever get to the Uzziah place. Lord, as a congregation, deal with our hearts before we ever get to the Uzziah place. Help us understand that every good thing in our life comes from you. But I got the education, and I worked late nights. I put in the overtime. I got up early. I went to bed late. Yeah, but he gave you the intelligence. He gave you the health. He put breath in your lungs. He got you up this morning. It's all his. Don't get to the Uzziah place. The scripture says the Lord delights in his people, and he crowns the humble with victory. If you've heard me talk much at all, you've probably heard me refer to what it means to stumble into place. It's it's taken from the story of Ruth, and it stands in direct contradiction to Uzziah's story. If you don't know the story, the King James Bible, when it talks about Ruth going into Boaz's field, it says in the King James, she happened upon a place. She literally just stumbled in the right place at the right time, and she met Boaz the whole story is incredible. Naomi was her mother-in-law. Naomi is, uh, was married to Elimelech. They were in Bethlehem. Famine hit the land. They had to go to Moab in order to survive because of the famine. Moab was not only at war with Israel, but there was a racial hostility between the two nations. So here they are away from their family, away from their home, living in a hostile place so hard that Elimelech dies. Naomi has two sons that have married Moabite women. One of them happened to be Ruth. In the harshness of that environment, both boys die. Orpah was one of the daughters-in-law. She goes back to her people. But Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to go home with you. I'm going to let your people be my people. So the two of them return back to Bethlehem. In that culture, they had no way of providing for themselves. The way the culture was supposed to work, there was supposed to be a male kinsman redeemer, the next of kin, who was supposed to step up and take the financial obligation of caring for these ladies. He did not exercise his responsibility, so it left them exposed. There was another process in that culture that helped provide for the poor. As the harvest was going on, it was known in that culture that the poor were allowed to go into the fields and walk behind the reaper's so that any grain that fell out of the reaper's bag or anything that was still left on the stalk, the poor could then harvest in order to sustain themselves. So every day, Ruth would get up to be faithful to her mother-in-law and she would go into the fields with the poor picking up leftover kernels and leftover grains and what was left on the stock. She's just plodding. She's just being faithful. She's just doing what she knows to do. She doesn't have bright lights in her eyes. She's just being faithful. And the Bible says she happened upon a place. Boaz owned a lot of land. He could have been in any field on that given day. But he happened to be standing there when Ruth happened upon that place to the point when he went, well, who's that? (laughs) And he said to his men that were reaping, hey, if she gets behind you, spill your bag. The Bible calls it leave her handfuls on purpose. And so Ruth started taking care of her mother in law with these handfuls that were being left on purpose. You read the story Ruth and Boaz fall in love. They get married. They have a child. His name is Obed. Obed has a child. His name is Jesse. Jesse has a child. His name is David. And generations later, the son of David, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings, is born. His name is Jesus. So you can literally trace the story of Jesus all the way back to a young Moabite girl who just got up every day to do what she knew to do. She didn't know where it was coming tomorrow. She didn't have bright lights in her eyes. She's just being faithful. She's a plotter and she winds up stumbling into her destiny. When I look back over the course of my life, I've been in places I shouldn't have been. I've been given opportunities I wasn't smart enough to have. It's simply because just be faithful, faithful, faithful. Just honor God. Just do what you know to do today and somewhere along the way, you're gonna happen about a place. When I look over the course of this church 98 years, the door should have closed more than once. And I see things that have happened in the 14 years that I've been here. We're not smart enough to figure this out. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't have all the right things. We, every, every time we meet together as a board, we open the prayer with God, would you give us the wisdom to stumble into place? Would you give us the wisdom to just be at the right place at the right time? We don't have the smarts in the sense, look, I know there are a lot of great books and we seek the wisdom of consultants, but I will tell you this, for this church to get where it is today, And to move into what God has for it in the future. It's not in somebody's book. I don't want to rest on a consultation. I just want to keep plotting and keep following behind the reapers and just keep being faithful and just keep stumbling with the sovereignty of God letting us happen upon our destiny. Verse 5 says, Let the faithful rejoice that he honors them and let them sing for joy as they lie on their beds. That's a unique image to me, singing for joy while you lie on your bed. In this verse, we learn about the praise of a secure people because that's what he's trying to say here. I've heard of people singing in the shower. I've heard of people singing out loudly and shouting loudly at a concert, even during a worship service, shouting for joy. But I've never thought about singing the song of expectant praise loudly while lying in my bed. But the image the psalmist is trying to paint is different than what comes to our mind when we first read it. He is celebrating this sense of security that God's people have when they truly trust in God as their defender. That they can rest... And wait with expectancy even while they are under siege. Remember the context of the psalm. It looks forward to the end of time, to the day when the Lord is going to finalize every battle in history. There's going to be this great victory, a victory that is going to be so complete and so overwhelming that is going to be celebrated in unexpected ways. Here is a people whose lives have been defined by war. And they are used to having to get up at any hour of the night and rush to the walls of their city to defend themselves. So in the natural, they would never think of lying in their bed singing for joy when the enemy is outside their city about to storm the walls. And yet the psalmist has their focused attention on a day when the Lord will overthrow their enemy and he's reminding them that they can trust him and wait with expectancy for the promise with this incredible sense of security. So instead of running to the walls, having to defend themselves, they can go to their beds at night and securely rest and sing a new song of deliverance and victory because God is their defender. It's a credible oxymoron because you have a people at war and an enemy lurking outside the city walls, and yet they trust God so deeply as their defender, they go to bed and rest and sing for joy while lying in their beds. It's kind of like saying, God's got this. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's the same imagery you get when the prophet Isaiah said there's coming a day when the lion's going to lie down with the lamb. That did not make sense. But when the kingdom of God is fully established on this earth, enemies are going to become friends and peace is going to come to earth when the prince of peace reigns. The lion is going to lie down with the lamb and the psalmist is telling God's people the same thing. There will come a day when his kingdom will be established and you will lie in your bed and sing for joy when the enemy is lurking outside the walls because you have such a deep trust that God is your defender. So in this moment, while you are under siege, sing expectantly, rejoice exuberantly, pray Praise humbly and rest securely. Go on to bed. Your God is in control. The last few verses may make you a little uncomfortable if you don't put them in a context because they are very militant. This was uh, the Old Testament. This was a warring people. They were always under attack. They were always the, 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 the short end of the stick, getting beat up on and invaded and taken captive. And God is focusing their attention when they will no longer be the brand plucked from the fire, but there will come a day when they will win. And it says in verse 6, Let the praises of God's people be in their mouths and a sharp sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with shackles and their leaders with iron chains, to execute the judgment written against them. This is the glorious privilege of his faithful ones. Praise the Lord. These are the promises of victory to people who have been under siege. But we know as New Testament believers, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Our weapons are not fleshly. We don't war with swords in our hands, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, our weapons are supernatural weapons for a very real spiritual war. So here are the transferable principles from these last few verses to us. Verse 6 through 9 show us the praise of a victorious people. Listen, worship and warfare go hand in hand. Like it or not, the church is an army. The uh, the world is our battlefield. And there is a very real struggle going on for the souls of men and women. And just as it was in Nehemiah's day when they had a tool for building the wall while they were under attack. So they had a, a weapon in one hand and a tool for building. We are building and battling at the same time. But as Paul said, our weapons are not fleshly. They are supernatural. We have the weapon of prayer, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the song of victory that we sing to our Lord. So our worship is warfare. We are singing soldiers and worshiping warriors. God has declared it in His Word. The day of the Lord will come. He is going to establish his kingdom on the earth. It may appear between now and then, like the church is losing, that God's people are taking a back seat, but in the end, we shall overcome. Today, the sword belongs to human governments and their agents, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It may be hard for us to imagine in the current realities of our world But the day is coming when wicked governments are going to be toppled and perverted tyrants are going to be unseated and terrorists will be no more. And the persecutors of the people of faith will have had their last day. When you look around this world, it may seem like in some places the church's influence is imperceptible and the gospel is not making many advances. But there is a day coming when the weak are going to be made strong and God is going to take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's going to turn the world on its head. The lion is going to lie down with the lamb. Every wrong is going to be righted. Every injustice is going to be set right in that notable day of our Lord. But until then, We sing expectantly, rejoice exuberantly, praise humbly, rest securely, and worship victoriously. As a people, in your own life, as a church family, we have to learn to start celebrating victories while we still find ourselves... In the heat of the battle, we have to learn to walk at a level of faith that will allow us to sing a new song of expectant praise before the victory ever materializes in front of us. I don't want you to miss the application of this because I'm talking about the day of the Lord and I'm talking about these end time promises. That day's coming. But I want you to know, in the same way we wait in expectant faith for that day, we wait with the same expectancy for the next big thing that God is going to do in our lives and in our church. Something is stirring. The waters are troubled. God is at work. And I want you to get to the place where you can sense it, that there is a new song that rises in your heart, and you take advantage of the season that we find ourselves in. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I wish I did feel what you were talking about. I wish I did sense it. I'm always reminded of the prayer over Pharaoh when Moses asked God to give Pharaoh a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And when I find myself at times when I know God is at work, but I've drifted, or I've let other things get in the way and my heart has gotten hard-hearted and callous to the place that I can't, I can't see with the eyes of faith and I can't sense what God is up to, I start asking Him, God, will you give me a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone? And my prayer for you, if you're in that place today, you, you don't, you don't feel the new song, you don't sense that God is up to something, that He would truly chisel away the stone in your heart and He would give you this heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. I want us to do something here in this moment. We got just a couple minutes to come back to that song about the miracles that we believe God is able to do. You know what they are in your life. and Maybe you're with me today thinking corporately, knowing that we need God to do some incredible things to move us from here all the things he's putting in our hearts. And I want us as a people, just before we walk out of this place, to position ourselves to receive what God is doing in your life and in your family. But as a church, one more declaration of expectant praise. We're going to praise you for a victory that hasn't even fully materialized, God, because we believe in you. Would you stand with me today? All over this place today and before we walk out of this room... Would you sing this with us together? Prayer team, would you make yourself available today? Come on, let's sing this together. I believe in you. I believe in you. It's a declaration. I believe in you. The walls are under attack. You're the God in the But I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. My life is under siege, but I believe in, him. I believe in you. You're the God of He's your defender. pray a prayer of faith with you. The Bible says when two or three agree, and we want to agree with you today, whether it's in your physical body, your financial situation, your marriage, your business, whatever it may be, the waters are troubled. Sabbath told us this morning his own story. The waters are troubled, and we just believe today that God can do some incredible things in your life, and the greatest miracle God will ever do is the miracle of giving you new life where you commit your life completely to him. He, you move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And if you're ready to completely surrender and go all in for Jesus, there is no greater miracle that could happen today other than that moment of surrender. And we invite you. We would love to pray with you a prayer of surrender for your dedication to Jesus Christ. I'm going to open these altars today and we're going to keep the environment worshipful. May God grow us to the place we become a people of expectant praise. Father, plant a new song in our hearts. Give us the sensitivity to know you're up to something before we can ever see you're up to something. To just know in our hearts there's something right around the corner. And God, some of us sense it and we pray for the fervor of a spiritual awakening for the miraculous resources to accomplish the impossible task of covering the earth with your glory God I ask you to bless them today as your people that you would keep them that you would make your countenance shine down upon them that you would turn your face their direction be gracious to them today Lord and give them peace In Jesus' name, amen and amen. These altars are open. God bless you.